Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. My guest today is Kate Powers, a lifelong theater kid who became an off-Broadway and regional theater director. Her list of credits is long, but I wanted to talk to Kate about the unusual home she's found for her work, Maximum Security Prisons. Kate is the founding artistic director of the Redeeming Time Project, which uses Shakespeare to effect positive change for the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. She has been a facilitator with Rehabilitation Through the Arts at Sing Sing Correctional Facility since 2009. Kate tells me how she discovered this work, how she runs her program, and the transformative effect of combining Shakespeare, famous for his depictions of all facets of human nature, with a prison population. I'm not going to lie to you. I had goosebumps for most of this interview, and I think you might too. If you do, I hope you'll consider donating to help these programs transform lives. You'll find links in the show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kate Powers. Kate Powers, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you. So I start everybody out with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you find your creative side later on in life? I think I was a pretty creative kid. I think I was uh, forced on my own resources pretty early. <laughs> so what did that look like? Uh, I'm the youngest of five. Uh, two of my siblings are developmentally disabled folks. Uh, so my parents did the best they could uh, with the circumstances and the cards they were dealt. Uh, but I think by the time I was about two, I figured out that I better get pretty autonomous pretty quickly. So I, um, I was always one of those kids who was very content to putter on my own, uh, to do things only for my own uh, interest or um, entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so pretty early. So did your parents encourage that or were they just kind of like you know, eh, you can do it for now? Or were they too busy with your other siblings to even really notice? I think they were, um, they were supportive to the extent that they had capacity to be supportive. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. It, makes a, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So when did you realize that you wanted to do theater for real? <laughs> um, that's an excellent question. The for real part makes me laugh um, because uh, uh, on a pretend level, I think by the time I was about eight, it was clear. Um, but probably uh, it was about uh, the summer that I turned 15. I was an apprentice at a Shakespeare festival. Um, and uh, I would say there was no turning back from there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So when you were 15, you figured this out. And then what did you decide to do next? Was it just, I'm going to drama school or pretty much it was, I'm going to drama school. Yes. Get out of my way. <laughs> I'm going to drama school. Um, my dad, uh, my parent, my dad took me to lots of auditions. Um, I did a couple summer training programs, uh, like at the Chautauqua institution, uh, things like that. Um, uh, my dad put his foot down about NYU because it was just too catastrophically expensive, both mm -hmm. to pay the tuition and also to try to live in New York city. And that was completely beyond our level of resources. Um, but other than that, they were like, if this is what you want to do, mazel tov kid. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause you hear so many stories that are the opposite. 
that we never had any of those like, no, you should major in something sensible conversations. Uh, what are you going to do when this doesn't work out? Um, I heard that from guidance counselors and from teachers who thought that I was wasting my intellect by going to drama school um, and who wanted me to come to my senses, but uh, not from my parents. I find that argument so fascinating, wasting your intellect by going to drama school. I mean, it seems to me, and I was not a theater major, though I am a theater fan, that there's an awful lot of intellect that goes into putting on a good show, regardless of what role you're in for it. Sure. But we live in a capitalist society and the odds and the the conversation that mostly uh, we do not have with kids who go to drama school is that Lin-Manuel Miranda is once in a generation. Mm -hmm. He's amazing. He's lovely. He's an astonishing human being and a creative force. But most of the people who go to New York or Chicago or LA are not going to have anything like that kind of stratospheric uh, experience. Um, And so I I think it would be great if we had more holistic conversations with kids in drama school about the various ways that you might apply what you've learned and what that could look like and what a more sustainable way to live might be. Yeah. And also, it's so fascinating to me how, you know, the original comment was you're wasting your intellect, but it's rooted in the capitalist society that you have to be able to make money and making money is not necessarily something that requires an intellect. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's such an interesting dynamic underneath all of these things and often a frustrating dynamic. So, What did you think you were going to do with your degree when you first went? Ah, well, uh, I was clearly, (laughs) I was clearly going to be running uh, uh, a a regional theater or a Shakespeare festival by the time I was 30, Nancy. That was obviously going to happen. Of course. (laughs) So you were always um, more interested in the the directing and administrative side, or did you want to do the acting too? Um, you know, I did some acting, uh, in high school and what I figured out, uh, about the time that I was applying to colleges was, um, that these are two different skill sets, uh, and I was going to diffuse my focus if I tried to do both at the same time. And, um, so I, I just, just, I chose to really lean into directing and I, I don't know that if I could talk to my 18 year old self, if I would tell her that that was maybe a limiting idea or a limiting misperception, but that was what I was cooking with at the time. Interesting. Especially because you seem to have done such interesting things with it. (laughs) So how did you, you know, you start out directing and somehow you end up deciding that Shakespeare is going to save the world. And boy, am I right there with you. I love this. What happens in between? I think I decided Shakespeare was going to save the world. And then I decided to be a director, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I first met Shakespeare um, before anybody had told me that he was good for me before I had this, before anybody could get to me with the idea that this was like this theatrical oat brand that you have to choke down. Right. Um, I just, I, saw my first production of Shakespeare play at the age of eight. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I just loved it. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to understand it. So I just did. (laughs) 
Um, and I'm sure some of the jokes went sailing over my head, but that's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so then I went to drama school and then I, uh, I did what, you know, hundreds of thousands. I was like, Oh, look, I'm a walking cliche. I did what hundreds of thousands of people do. I just came to New York city, uh, to, you know, start my career and sort of go, Hey, New York, aren't you thrilled that I'm here? Oh, wait, New York does not care. <laughs> Yeah, New York is I love New York, but but yeah, it I is, do. It is rather impersonal that way. Yeah. Yeah, the professional theater uh in New York City, I I um lovingly refer to as a bitch goddess. Um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it'll break your heart about 6 times a week. Wow. Yeah. And yet so many people <laughs> are just so many people. there for it. Yep. Yeah. Because we aren't having that conversation with them at the undergraduate level to say, Hey, guess what? Like, yes, that is one definition of success. And there might be about 36 others that you haven't considered. Yes. And I think the whole idea of what success looks like is one that we don't talk about enough in general, regardless of what field you're in, you know, I mean, you could be the world's most successful CEO and be miserable. So is that really success? Right. Right. But in capitalism, right. Again, it's not, it's not a very comprehensive or holistic conversation about right. what for you are the important components. Right. Yeah. 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 We, we overlook all of that. And then we wonder why people are miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you decide that you wanted to do more with your theater background than just put on shows and have your own theater company? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I went, gosh, uh, like 17 or 18 years ago, I went to a conference, um, which was the Shakespeare theater association conference, um, which is mostly comprised of people who are, uh, in leadership roles at Shakespeare theaters, uh, principally in the United States and in Canada, but also the UK and now much more international than it was even then. Right. Um, and I was sort of elbowing my way in my pointy, uh, freelancer elbows. Uh, I thought, can I come and participate in this? And, uh, one of the people that I met at that very first conference, uh, is a guy named Kurt Toffland. Uh, at the time, Kurt was the artistic director of Kentucky Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and he also ran a program, uh, that he had founded called Shakespeare Behind Bars. Uh, and there's actually a great documentary on Netflix called Shakespeare Behind Bars. Uh, so if anybody wants to sort of dive into the rabbit hole of this work, um, I recommend that um, documentary. But uh, Kurt was filled with all these stories about the work that he had done with the men, uh, the kinds of transformations that uh, people were experiencing uh, through um, making theater uh, in a maximum security or a medium security environment. Um, and I thought, I think I have to do that. Um, and he said, now you have to be very thoughtful about how you enter into this work because the emptiness that will be there after you leave will be so much greater than the hole that was there before you arrived that you can't just sort of parachute in for six months. You need to make a commitment. Um, and I thought, well, I'm a freelance director. I don't know where I'm going to be next Thursday, much less five years from now. And so I held off. I hesitated a little bit because I was taking him very seriously about that. Um, 
And then eventually, uh, I, you know, I, I would see him each year and he would tell me some news stories. And, um, I just really felt like this was something I needed to do. And I found this program, uh, that was founded by Catherine Vokens uh, and some men who are incarcerated at Sing Sing Correctional Facility called Rehabilitation Through the Arts. And I reached out to Catherine and kind of jumped into the deep end of the pool. And that was 15 years ago. Wow. So, yeah. I've heard that, you know, because like there's a, I'm close to Princeton University and there's a prison teaching project there. And I've, mm-hmm. I've heard from people who've been involved in things like that about like the restrictions on what you can bring in with you, you know, like things that most of us wouldn't or even think about. Mm-hmm. How, how did you, you know, how, how did your actual experience when you first walked in differ from what you expected or were you pretty, pretty solidly prepared. You know, it's interesting. Um, I always uh, say about the first night that I went in there, uh, that I forgot to be afraid. Um, mm. cause I was just so excited to get to work. Um, and, uh, my Catherine, uh, very wisely, uh, would pair anybody who was a new, uh, uh teaching artist coming in, uh, with somebody who'd been doing the work for a while. Right. And so the, the, the brief initially was, just go and be a presence in the room. Uh, let the men get to know you a little bit, right? Let them suss you out. Okay, fine. So, so I go in on that first night and, uh, I'm assisting a guy, uh, named Jeff Blazer, uh, who's out in LA now. Uh, and Jeff is just getting underway, just starting to rehearse a play that he's directing with the men. And he, I think I was in there about 15 minutes before Jeff turns to me and says, would you mind to read this scene with somebody? And I said, sure. Right. So, uh, I jump in and, and the, the incarcerated actor and I are sitting sort of knee to knee facing each other and all the rest of the men are around us in a circle. Uh, and we read the scene and the scene is, it's a, it's a play that the men have written during uh, a protracted kind of like 18 month uh, writing process. And then, uh, you know, various writing prompts and then slowly distilling down into, um, a dramatic piece. Right. So it's this ensemble piece, which is really looking at like, what happens to your uh, uh, relationships when you're serving a long sentence, right? Um, And from as many different perspectives as possible. So anyway, so this particular scene is about uh, a visit between a husband and a wife and the communication has started to break down between them. And uh, so we read the scene once and then Jeff is trying to coach the actor uh, whose whose nickname uh, was Knowledge, right? So he's trying to coach Knowledge uh, and give him a few prompts. And at one point he says to knowledge, so, uh, what do you want to do to get her to, you know, behave the way you want her to behave? Meaning the characters, right. Mm-hmm. And knowledge, I think because <clears throat> looking back on this now, knowing knowledge, the way that I got to know him over time, I think he was nervous that night because there's 30 guys in the circle watching him with the brand new woman in the room. Right. Right. So knowledge makes a joke and he makes the worst joke he can make. He goes, well, I don't know. Can I choke her? <gasps> And I didn't miss a beat, Nancy. I just said, you go ahead and try Mike Tyson. I can take you. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently I was the talk of the cell block that that night because I wasn't afraid. And I sort of met his joke with sort of equal energy. And we just did the work. I treated them like people and because they're people, because Mm -hmm. the people we incarcerate are people. Yes. Right. Uh, they're not all these horrific attributes that we, none of us is just the worst thing we ever did. Do you know? Yes. Um, 
if I was only, if I had to, every time I introduced myself, tell everyone the worst thing I ever did. Right. Right. We don't have to do that. Right. Um, but we ask these men who, for whom many of them, every system, every structure failed them long before they ended up in prison, right? Like Mm -hmm. teachers failed them and school systems and, uh, social workers and, uh, you know, city municipal, uh, sort of kinds of structures of support weren't there. Um, all of those things, right. Uh, no child left behind, God help us, right. Left Mm -hmm. so many children behind, right. Um, so, so many things, racism, systemic racism, all these things, uh, which isn't to excuse or mitigate crimes that people committed, but to put context around them. Like we should really be having a much more complicated conversation Mm -hmm. about um, all these things. But uh, as a society, we're not great at that, right? We want these very reductive little sound bites. We want everything to be simple and black and white. Yeah. Um, But uh, sorry, that's my soapbox over there that I just stepped on. You're not wrong. (laughs) Yeah. But one of the things we see in a carceral space, uh, you know, the the recidivism rate nationally is about 68%, right? Uh, It varies state by state. In New York state, it's like 55%. uh, Minnesota, it's a little under 50%. But regardless, that means that half or more than half of the folks that we incarcerate uh, upon their release from prison are back in crime for a new back in prison for a new crime or a parole violation within two years. So we're not doing great by folks. Right. And, and some folks may say, oh, well, clearly those are career criminals. But the other more complicated answer is we're also not giving them the tools to come home and re-enter, mm-hmm. right? If, if you want to teach somebody how to be a career criminal, the best place for them to spend some time is inside a prison. Um. But men who participate in prison theater programs in this country, the recidivism rate is less than 5%. That's fantastic. And I'm surprised and not surprised all at the same time. Right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, you get to practice being in relationship with other human beings. Uh, you get to, in some ways, uh, you know, the mirror neurons get to fire in the brain. Uh, you get to sometimes play a role that gives you critical distance on whatever your experience was, or maybe your crime was, or your childhood trauma was, uh, and you can explore and start to imagine alternative outcomes. Uh, it's critical thinking, it's vocabulary building, it's being in relationship, it's delayed gratification, it's problem solving. All while we're just, just big air quotes, telling a story, making a play. And Shakespeare turns out to be super good for that. I mean, we do at Sing Sing, we do all kinds of uh, material, but uh, one of the things that Shakespeare specifically is great for is that he over and over again shows us uh, the full range of what it means to be human, mm-hmm. right? From the most exalted to the most base and vile, uh, from the violent to the lover to the ridiculous, right? He shows us the whole range. Uh, and also there's no whatever in Shakespeare right? Like there's no, eh, yeah, that's fine. Like whatever people feel in a Shakespeare play, they feel it with their whole person, right? Their whole heart, their whole soul. Um, and so, uh, the invitation over and over again is to lean into that. And it turns out to help people figure out who they want to be and how they want to live and what kind of actions they want to take and 
how they want to come home. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost a cliche that Shakespeare is, you know, the first and foremost expert on human nature ever, but it's a cliche for a really good reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I will also say, right. He's super problematic, like bless him. (laughs) You know, I have a master's degree in Shakespeare. I've spent most of my life with him. He's super problematic. Right. Um, he's a little bit racist. (laughs) He's a little bit sexist. Um, but we can also look at those things and have a conversation about them in the room and make a decision about how do we want to engage with that piece of the material or that component of the story. And where do we see those? Because also real talk, racism and sexism are, you know, galloping about the world. So yeah, they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> and, and in a man's maximum security facility, they're hunkered down tight. Right. So how do we, how do we explore those things through the story? rather than pretending they're not there or just cutting them out of the play and going, Oh, see, everything's fine. Right. But but he sitting with that complexity. Yeah. Yeah. So how do the folks you're working with respond to things like that? Do they tend to notice them on their own or do you bring them up or is it some of each? I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, So I just did a workshop last summer at Sing Sing and we were just reading some plays, right? Because we were locked out for a long time during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so we were just starting to get back in and kind of uh, reacclimate with one another, right? Um, and so this w- workshop last summer was really just to read some plays together to start to think about like what might we want to do for a production as we, you know, get back up to full speed and so on. And uh, so we were reading uh, one of the plays the men wanted to read was Death of a Salesman, um, and at one point, one of the men said wait, is this a white family or a black family? Oh. And I said, well, I don't know. What do you think? And so we discussed a little bit. And then somebody said, one of the men said, well, he just called somebody an ignoramus and only white people use that word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, so they, they're there. And then we talked about the fact that you know, there was a production coming to Broadway this fall, this past fall, right? Uh, that was sort of uh, the African, the African American Loman family at the center of the narrative. It wasn't an, it wasn't an all African American uh, telling, um, but they really they used that play as a way to explore uh, some of the systemic injustices and inequities and uh, the kind of racism that Willie Loman would have experienced had he been a black man. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I actually did salesman, uh, at Fishkill correctional facility, gosh, like 10 years ago now, I think. Um, and one, and at, when the men wanted to do it, um, I'll be honest with you, Nancy, I died a tiny little death the night that they asked me to do it. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm so sick of death of salesman. <laughs> I, I don't know how many times I had to watch the film of Dustin Hoffman and John mm-hmm. Malkovich while I was in drama school and everything else. Right. So I was like, Ugh. but one thing that I found working on it with the men at Fishkill was that it resonates very differently in there than it does on the outside. And it, it, the play sort of did different things and was talking about different things. And again, sort of coming back to that question of like, uh, what does success mean for you? And are you letting someone else or are you letting society write your definition of success for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens if you say, uh, like Biff, ultimately the son, uh, Biff and salesman ultimately comes to say to his father, you and I are a dime a dozen pop and we're never going to make it this way, but I'm good with my hands. And I like to be out 
in the open air. So that's what I'm going to go do. But you have to stop expecting that I'm going to come back and get on the business ladder because mm-hmm. it's not who I am, right? Um, and for the, those men in that incarcerated space to invite the question of what does your version of success look like? What does coming home and being successful mean for each of the people in the circle? And just inviting them to have that conversation over an extended period of time together. Right. So that they weren't just kind of by rote going, oh yeah, well, I'm gonna get a job, I'm gonna make a lot of money, I'm gonna blah, 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 blah. But how do I want to come home? How do I want to re-enter? How do I want to engage and connect? What kind of conclusions did they come to? Okay. Pick one. Every I mean, amongst the group, somebody felt every every single thing you can imagine, right? So a couple of those men, uh, have come home and have gotten kind of corporate jobs, right? And are doing that. Um, most of them are in service jobs, those men who are who are home, uh, either working for nonprofit organizations that are about giving back in some way. Um, one of them founded a program that is working specifically with um, like tweens, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade kids who uh, come from sort of historically defunded communities and who are most likely to get swept into that school to prison pipeline, uh, but they haven't been systems impacted yet. And so he's grabbing them up and he's got this like wraparound of after school services for them. So there's food, there's sports, there's theater, um, there's uh, painting and other visual arts um, so that they can, each, each kid can jump into whatever part speaks to them. Um, and his hope is, you know, that he can keep them out of the system that ate 25 years of his life. Right. And, you know, I mean, he's got the perfect background to know exactly what is likely to help, which is fantastic. He's a super credible messenger. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wow. So when you first walk into a space like that and say, we're going to do Shakespeare. (laughs) Yes. I, I'm trying to imagine the kind of reactions you must get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so I started a new program in 2017 at a new facility. Uh, and I went uh, to the facility like six or eight weeks before the workshop was going to begin. And the idea was to introduce myself, uh, sort of introduce the program and see if I could drum up any interest, right? Uh, So I came in and about 30 guys had signed up to come hear what I was, you know, proposing. And I invited them uh, to rearrange the chairs. The chairs were all set up in these very strict rows uh, when I got there. And so I immediately invited everyone to uh, create some uh, furniture chaos in the room (laughs) by moving everything into a big circle so we could all see each other, right? Um, And... I had a clip from a video of two of the men at Sing Sing talking about working on a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night that we did in 2016 and what they got out of it, right? It was a local news story at the time. Uh, So I brought that so that they could hear directly from their peers about what the value was. Uh, I invited them to play a couple games with me. Uh, um, And I I remember uh, one of the men was a few minutes late 
uh, getting there. He got detained at work or or on his, on his shift or something. And so he, he sort of burst into the room and he shouted forsooth (laughs) as he kind of banged the door open. Right. Um, but so we played some games and, uh, I remember there was, there's one kind of circle activity that we were trying to play and it was, it's, it's like a breath and eye contact and, uh, movement that you're sort of mirroring the movement. And then it's traveling from, you know, you and I make, make eye contact, take a breath together. We're going to do the movement. Then you're going to turn to the person on the other side of you. And it's going to slowly travel around the circle. Um, and ideally after you do that a couple of times, it starts to pick up a little tempo and a little bit of pace. Right. Um, and we'd get about halfway around the circle and there was a gentleman over there. Every time it got to him, he would get completely flustered. He, he couldn't make the eye contact with the person. He couldn't take the breath. The whole rhythm of the whole circle would kind of go, right. It would just fall apart. Um, I don't know how that's going to sound on a podcast, but, uh, um, but it just, you know, fizzled out and then the people next to him would sort of pick it back up and then the rhythm would start to, and the speed would start to, and it would come around the circle and then it would get to him and fall apart one more time. Right. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to see that man again. He can't wait to get out of this room. I'm torturing this poor man. Uh, but he came and he literally never missed a session. And, uh, he became sort of the poster child ultimately for the whole project. Um, uh, his name was Bob and we used to joke, uh, that his face should appear on milk cartons, uh, by about halfway through the first workshop, because he said, um, people are starting to wonder what happened to the old Bob. Oh, Bob has vanished. Um, and he said, my wife has said that our visits are different. And, um, so and, and and then he ended up working on a soliloquy from Hamlet um, at a certain point. Um, so, and another one of the men in that circle initially, he was like, "Well, Shakespeare, why doesn't he just why doesn't he just say what he means?" <laughs> Question of high school students everywhere, <laughs> right? Why doesn't he just say what he means? Um, but what was really lovely was we. I, I started with those gentlemen in that facility. Uh, there's a speech at the beginning of Henry V. Uh, which a lot of people might be a little bit familiar with, which starts, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, right? And it's about a 30-line speech, and it's really kind of setting up the action of the play. Um, But part of what I like about doing doing that piece at the beginning is it sort of tells us what theater is and also what theater is not. Uh, Because in the course of that play, or course of that speech, the the guy says, um, think when we talk of horses that you see them. Right. Imagine if within, and he says this wooden O, right. Meaning the theater. Imagine if within this wooden O, we could have these armies, right. Uh, When you see one, imagine that you see a hundred. And so he's saying audience, we cannot do this without you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for, for a population of folks who, some of whom have never been to a play before um, it's a great way to get into the language and, and to start to imagine what the possibilities are or what we can make together. Right. So, uh, I had given each of them, each, the men were in small groups of two or three folks. And I gave each group, uh, a, a set of cards with all the words that were in one line of that speech. Right. So one group got O for a muse of fire that would ascend, but not necessarily in that order, like just a pile of words. Each word was on its own card. And I said, put those in the order that you think they go in. Right. Um, and, uh, and then once they all, each group thought they had an order that they liked, I said, great, now figure out, like, is one person going to speak or are all three of you going to speak? Or is, is everyone going to say this one word together? How do you want to present it? And, and what's a movement that goes with the order that you found, right? So, and we did that a few times, right? Whatever order they pleased. 
And then I gave them the order in which the words actually appear in the speech, right? And so now they played with their physicality and their vocal energy and stuff a couple times. And then we went around the circle and each group had had their words in the right order. And so we went from the first line to the second line to the third line and so on around the room. And we went all the way around the room. And then there was this moment where nobody spoke. And it was almost as if nobody took a breath because they suddenly saw the possibility and they understood what had just happened. And then one of the men said, can we do that again right away? And so we did. Right. And that was, that was the third week of the workshop. Right. So we're like six hours in and now Shakespeare belongs to them. Yeah. And then what happens is once Shakespeare belongs to you, once you can like kick his butt to the curb and back again, because you understand what he's doing. Um, then one's relationship to all of world culture can shift because he comes down off of that pedestal, right? And he comes out of the church of Shakespeare and he comes to the Shakespeare block party. And if you're somebody who has been told by every guidance counselor and every teacher and every social worker that you're stupid, that you're a thug, that you're a monster, that you're an animal, that you're garbage your whole life, but now you own Shakespeare's behind, yeah. Maybe you're not as stupid as all those people told you you were. Right. So the confidence, the self-esteem, the literacy skills, the critical thinking, just like fireworks. I'm like sitting here with goosebumps. This is amazing. It's like such a privilege to be in the room when that happens. And so the guy who at the first session was like, wow, why doesn't Shakespeare just say what he means? By halfway through that first workshop, he's sitting in the front row while people are working on their pieces, making these like proud uncle sounds at them while they're, they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, you can do it. Yeah, you tell, you, you tell it, right? And then he says at one point, we're looking at a scene from Othello uh, between Iago and his wife, Amelia, who he treats like crap, right? And we've just read it once through. And this guy, Monty says, well, you know, I can see that he doesn't really love her, but she has grown through her pain. This is like six weeks into the first workshop. And I said, could you wait a little bit longer before you don't need me at all? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is amazing and awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see how you would just never get tired of it. Never gets old. Never there's- gets old. It, it, just hearing about it, I can feel that there's just so much magic in that in its way. You know, it's it's doing so many amazing things. It's no wonder that Bob was not the old Bob anymore. The old Bob. You know? Yeah. You know, the other thing is um, uh, men start to like, so other guys in the yard start to see the difference, right? And start to look up to the guys who are in the theater group a little bit. Well, I want to, I don't know what's happening to him, but. I kind of want a piece of that. So does it, I mean, do do you end up with almost like more interest than you can handle as a result? Absolutely. Yeah. At Sing Sing, the waiting list is a few years long to get into the theater group. Wow. Wow. And I'm assuming that when you have your actual performances, it's for the other folks that are there. It's not like their friends and family can likely get in, I'm guessing. So, uh, before the pandemic, uh, we haven't, we're, we're, we're still working our way back. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but before the pandemic, uh, what it looked like was we would perform the play, uh, three times. Uh, so on a Wednesday night and a Thursday night, we would perform it for the population of the facility. 
right? So that might be as many as 300 men a night might come down and see it. Uh, it's not everybody's jam and that's okay, right? So not everybody comes, but usually five or 600 men out of 1800 at the facility would come and see it. Not bad. And, and then on the Friday night, we would perform for an invited audience of civilians. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, usually the day that the tickets are available for civilians, like the, e- the email might go out, say at two o'clock in the afternoon one day, and by four o'clock, they're gone. It is because we can only have about 275 people come mm-hmm. in. Um, and uh, because all those people have to get screened into the facility, right? Um, and so that's extra. Um, correctional officers have to be on uh, duty. So that's overtime, right? Um, and also the space, just uh, the space that we can accommodate. So um, for years, the families were not allowed to attend the performances that was deemed to be a security risk. So mm-hmm. it took, it took I think, about 16 or 17 years to persuade the Department of Corrections to let the families wow. come. Um, and so the first year that the families could come, the men said, well, then we want to do a show for our kids. So they did The Wizard of Oz. And those were some of the biggest munchkins I have ever seen, <laughs> Nancy. But it was just, it just, it would have made your dog weep. It was so sweet. Right. It was so beautiful, right? Um, and then uh, the real showstopper then, right, was uh, at the end when Dorothy is clicking her heels and getting ready to go home. Oh, yeah. All the men came out into the audience and they stood by their family oh. person. And they all said, there's no place like home. And two of the men didn't have any family coming that night. And so they had said to me beforehand, can you be our family? And I was like, well, yes. Right. (laughs) So then they came and stood by me and I was just, they, they still to this day will tease me about how hard I cried that night. I I bet there wasn't a dry eye in the whole place. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that, that everyone who comes in to see this is, is just blown away and sees their folks in a very different light. So, you know, we, one of the things that's really lovely about that performance, I mean, I think it's, the process is really important for the men in terms of, uh, you know, all those skills that we were talking about Mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, but that those performances are important in their own way, because in the, in the sort of weird small town that is the interior of the prison, they start to become role models and people look up to them. And they, like, they talk about those nights when they go back to the cell block, they feel like rock stars because people are like calling out lines of the play to them as they go back. Right. Or they're, you know, um, uh, when we did our town, uh, this one guy uh, who played editor Webb said that for weeks people would say, yo, yo, it's Emily's pops. It's Emily's pops. Every time he showed up anywhere in the facility. Um, and, uh, so there's that piece. So, but, uh, with their, they, they talk about just being free, right. That they feel like those nights they're free. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when the, when the civilian audience comes in, so that's maybe 20% of that audience is comprised of, um, department of corrections, uh, officials and, you know, folks from Albany and, um, other sort of mid-level bureaucrats and stuff like that. Right. So, uh, Part of part of the political and legislative and governmental machine, right? Mm-hmm. And then probably twenty five percent of the audience is now their families, so their spouses, their parents, their children get to come. And for some of those families, they have never gotten an opportunity to like look up at their person, right? And feel proud, right? And also see these government officials and these 
piles of like, frankly, like progressive white people who comprise the rest of the audience, mm-hmm. right? People who are kind of excited about the work. Um, but to see them get a standing ovation, to see them hold everybody's attention wrapped for two hours, uh, that is transformative for the men, that is transformative for their families, right? Um, and then, you know, for a lot of the folks who are coming in, it's their first time inside a maximum security facility. Um, and our society has a rhetoric about who it is that we lock up, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so to come into that space and meet the men and watch their work and have a chance to chat with them a little bit uh, blows people's minds right open in what I think is some of the most exciting and constructive ways. I'm sure. Inviting people to sort of trouble that pop culture idea of who it is we incarcerate. Yeah. Cause as you say, they're people. They're people. Yeah. Ugh. So you mentioned the recidivism rate drops for folks who've yeah. done the theater. Have, have you had a chance to talk to people who've transitioned back into society about how they feel that being in that program helped them do that? Sure. Sure. All day long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's a, it's the ability to make eye contact in a job interview for one thing. Right. Uh, you know, uh, every workshop I start inside, uh, there's always what I would call some elders in the circle, right. Some, some guys who've been involved in the program for a while. Right. Um, and then there's always some newbies. There's always a guy who's coming for the first time. And, uh, sort of a double-edged thing, right? So on the one hand, a lot of the men won't go to the GED program or the college program because they have learned that school is not for them, right? Because of their lived experience and the way they were treated. Mm -hmm. They're they're not good at school. But they might come to the theater class because we're jumping up and down and we're laughing a lot and we're, it looks like we're having a very silly good time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, those guys come into our room and the first time we ask them to participate in whatever the silly game or activity, you know, which is about, creating some focus and some shared energy in the room. Uh, Suddenly that guy thrusts his hands deep in his pockets and he's staring at the floor and there's nothing more fascinating than his shoes because he is terrified to look like a fool in front of the other men. Yeah. Right. Um, So for some men, sometimes success is not running out of the room, right? Just staying. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, I, my language is always, I say, and I get this, from Kurt Toffland at Shakespeare Behind Bars, uh, it's always an invitation. It's never a demand, right? So I invite you to play this game. You don't want to play the game. You want to stand over there with your hands buried in your pockets. Okay. The game will be over here, right? Um, And usually one of the things that happens is the the elders in the circle or the old heads, they're jumping in. They're having a great time because they are over that anxiety about looking foolish. Um, And sooner or later, it becomes irresistible because it looks really fun. Mm-hmm. And so they jump in, right? Um, but success looks different for each man who comes into the room, right? It might take some guys like half an hour. It might take some guys six weeks. As long as they keep coming in the room, I can work with that, right? You know. Um, but so uh, some some men, uh, and you know, uh, Jim Gilligan is a psychologist who's written a book called Violence, and he talks about how shame is at the root of so much violence in our society. Um, and uh, Charles Darwin has also talked about visiting American prisons uh, at one point. Um, and he talked about how so many people that he met couldn't make eye contact with him 
right? And so I think the fact that we come in, the teaching artists come in, and the first thing we do is we look people in the eye and we say, hello, and I'm Kate, and it's so great to meet you, which is maybe a phrase they have not heard Mm -hmm. in however many years, right? Um, And I just keep making the invitation, right? So I think the people, people learn how to be back in relationship. There's a guy who was one of the founding members of the program at Sing Sing who said uh, that when he, um, when the program first started, he said, I was not that interested in communication. He said, either you were my people or you weren't my people. If you were my people, I was like, sup. If you weren't my people, I was like, F you. Mm -hmm. And he said, that was pretty much my range of communication. But then one night it rained. So he couldn't go to the yard and lift weights. And one of his cellmates or, uh, you know, somebody on his tier said, why don't you come to the theater workshop? And so he came and he said, uh, the way he tells the story is that he, his hands were shaking so much that he could barely read the words of the script. Um, cause he suddenly was so nervous mm-hmm. to stand there. He said, but then a funny thing happened. He said, I learned to communicate and then I got addicted to communicate. <laughs> right. So he's been home now for almost 20 years and he, uh, he works with a nonprofit organization, which is about in uh, getting, getting members of opposing gangs and neighborhoods to work together on projects that build up their communities. So that's where he went after being in the theater group. This guy who did not like to communicate. Yeah. He's communicating all day long. All day long. Wow. And passing it on. Yeah. So I'm wondering who pays for all of this? Yeah, this is not a get rich quick scheme. I do not recommend it. If you're looking to like buy a bigger house, this is not the plan. Um, So there's not a lot of money to support this work in most parts of the country. Uh, The big exception is the state of California, which I think with a lot of social movements tends to just be way out ahead of the curve. Um, so the state of California, uh, funds through Shakespeare, uh, Marin Shakespeare company, uh, and the actors gang in LA and the old globe in San Diego all have different prison performing arts programs, um, that are pretty well supported by, uh, the state by, well, by, I should say by a combination of the state and then, you know, some individual grants and then, uh, donors, right. Um, there aren't that many foundations, uh, that have wanted to put money into this work. Um, there's a handful. A lot of these uh, programs have for a lot of years been real labors of love, kind of shoestring operations. Um, RTA, I would say, has just in the past, maybe like five, six years, kind of found a slightly firmer financial footing through some, uh, you know, um, really determined, uh, development work by their team. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, in general across the country, it is not super well supported. And sometimes it's one or two teaching artists who mostly don't pay themselves mm-hmm. because whatever money they raise, they're putting into scripts and costumes and supplies for the folks in the program. Well, if there's a place where anybody who's listening to this can drop a couple bucks if they feel so inclined because 
I can only speak for myself, but it certainly seems to me like we should be supporting exactly this sort of thing because it's doing so much good in so many ways. Where would you send them? Sure. Uh, So I would probably send them directly to one of the organizations that's doing the work. Um, So uh, in New York State, uh, that's Rehabilitation Through the Arts. Uh, Their website is rta-arts.org. Um, I started a program, uh, in the state of Minnesota, um, to continue doing this work because, uh, nobody was doing that out there called the redeeming time project. Um, and so you can Google redeeming time, uh, and throw some money that way. There's also, as I say, there's Shakespeare San Quentin through Marin Shakespeare. Um, there's, um, prison performing arts is in Michigan. Um, Kentucky Shakespeare does Shakespeare behind bars. Um, so yeah, there's a handful of organizations. Okay. out there. There's one in the Pacific Northwest called Open Hearts, Open Minds. Um, any of them would be happy to take somebody's $25 and put it yeah, to good work. I'm, I'm hoping that people who hear this will do that because I think that, like I said, I mean, I feel like there's so much bang for your buck, right? There's so much that is coming out of this that's so incredible and so positive. Well, yeah. And, you know, I, I bet about once a week, I have somebody say something to me to the effect of why do these murderers get free Shakespeare? And yeah, right. Um, but, but part of the answer is who do you want coming home? Right. Because do you want a guy who's been parked in a box of his own bitterness and hurt and anger for 25 years? Like how has that been serving us as a country? Right. Or do you want a guy who had an opportunity to say, hang on, I don't want to be that guy anymore, but I'm not sure how to pivot. Oh, wait, here's this program that can help me practice being in relationship with other humans and develop all these skills, these life skills that I can bring home so that I can give back, right? Like, it's not just about the individual men in the program. It's about the communities they come home to. Right. And yet the question is also rooted in the idea that we're not talking about actual people. Correct. Correct. I'm here to tell you they're people. (laughs) Some of the most, I will say some of the most extraordinary human beings I have ever met. I bet. Are people I have met behind the walls. And I'm so grateful. Like, and I tell them all the time and they scoff at me, but it's completely true that I learn more from them than I could possibly offer them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they scoff at it because they've probably started to believe that they aren't people too. Right. Yeah. It's re- it, it's, it's very hard not to internalize that message if you get yeah. hit over the head with it as that much, you know? <sighs> well, before we run out of time, I was looking at your website and I saw a post that was about 10 years old called Law and Order Denmark. Okay. And and it was basically Hamlet as a court case. Right. Yes. Right, right, right. Okay. And I uh-huh. just thought that this was such a brilliant idea, and I was hoping that you could tell everybody about it. Sure. So we were doing a Hamlet workshop at Sing Sing, and um, one of the uh, one of the things I was really concerned is that I didn't want to, I didn't want to send people running for the hills. So uh, at least initially we gave them a scene a week, right? I didn't want to give them these huge tomes that might 
scare people away. So we just initially, we just had the, the very first scene. And then the second week it was like, here's scene two. Right. Um, and then once we, once everybody was kind of hooked, then it was like, okay, here's your book. Right. Um, but at one point, um, uh, we decided to put, uh, Claudius, the King on trial, um, and sort of do an improvisational trial. And so we, we appointed folks to be, um, uh, the, you know, the prosecution team that was going to try Claudius for the murder of the dead King Hamlet. Uh, and we were going to have his defense team. Uh, and we, we picked someone to be the judge who was going to oversee the case, uh, and then a jury. Um, and in this case, quite literally a jury of Claudius's peers, because all four of the men who comprised the jury as for this exercise, uh, were guys who also had murder convictions. Um, and uh, I thought we were going to do this for like 15 minutes, but the men loved being in charge of the courtroom mm-hmm. uh, and that opportunity to explore. And uh, at one point uh, they put uh, the actor, the, the incarcerated actor who was playing Horatio, Hamlet's best friend, they put him on the stand. And uh, this is a guy who had been on point all the way through the workshop. He'd been really focused. He um, had had some really great insights and the, the uh, prosecution started to question him and uh, they were trying to get him to sort of say, oh, Hamlet's crazy, right? Uh, we shouldn't listen to what he has to say. Um, and so that they proposed a question to him about, well, isn't it true that, you know, uh, you know, Hamlet thinks he sees ghosts or something like that? And he said, nope, nope, nope. And I was like, wait a minute. I know he knows, right? And so I sort of playfully said, uh, listen, as the magistrate on behalf of Mr. Shakespeare, I need to have a word with uh, the witness. And so I went up to him and I said, Pete, I said, what's going on? And he said, but I promised Hamlet. I swore I wouldn't tell. <laughs> and I was like, you are nine steps ahead of me, my friend. Yeah. Um, but I think that opportunity again, you know, sort of that critical distance on what was an incredibly traumatic experience for everybody in that room being on trial. Right. Uh, and so they got this opportunity through, uh, sort of playing with these sh- characters in Shakespeare to really tease out and imagine some different pathways forward for themselves. And it's, it's such an unusual way to approach Hamlet, but it sounds like it was a fun way to, you know, kind of be making your case based on actual material out of the play. So it's, it's a fun role play on its own, but it's also a chance to like show off how much, you know, and how much you understood what's going on in this play in a really cool way. And it's text analysis and it's critical thinking skills, yeah. right? And what if we taught Hamlet like that in high schools? I was just thinking, I hope that there's a high school teacher listening who says, I'm going to do this in my class. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We also, uh, when we were working on Hamlet, we did uh, auditions for the ghost, you know? So each <laughs> person in the room got to imagine what they thought that ghost might look like, how they might move, what they might sound like. Um, you know, I think, I think everybody should, Nobody, nobody should get introduced to Shakespeare by sitting at a desk, head down, just like mumbling through it. Everybody should be invited to get up on their feet and, and play with the text. Shakespeare's pretty resilient. He can take whatever we do to him. Yeah, <laughs> He'll get over it, you know? Yeah. yeah, I've been saying probably since I was in high school, you know, why, why are we handing kids copies of these books and expecting them to go home and read it like it's a newspaper article or an book. It's not. Yeah. It's meant to be seen. And we make them read it first and try to imagine it all in their heads when there's 
not a whole lot to really help a young modern audience figure out what this is supposed to look like. And, you know, you wouldn't send a, a class of high school kids home with a copy of a Beethoven score and say, read this tonight and we'll talk about it tomorrow. You would never, ever do that. Right. And the other thing I think, uh, you know, in terms of like middle school and high school kids is some kids are going to want to jump up and read and play characters. Great. There's other kids who are not going to, that is not going to be their jam. Right. So great. They, they can be on the dramaturgy team. They can be manning the dictionary, looking up words that we don't understand. And they can become sort of that source of knowledge in the room. Other kids can start to think about like, well, what music do we want to have playing underneath this? Like what, what's the, what's the musical interpretation of this moment? Somebody else can be thinking about what the costumes might look like mm-hmm. or what the set might look like. What do we need to have on stage? So not a, you don't have to force the kid who doesn't want to get up and read to get up and read. There's, there's a point of entry for every kid's interest into how do we tell this story in the most exciting way? What makes this more dramatically compelling? Um, and I know there are men that I've worked with, uh, in maximum security who have said, if there had been a program like this in my junior high, I would never have ended up here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe that. So. Yeah. Call, make sure that the arts are being taught in your schools. And and taught well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Because it could quite literally save someone's life. Yes. Well, I am so glad that our paths crossed online. Yeah. Because <laughs> I had a feeling that this would be an interesting conversation. I I was not expecting the goosebumps. Those were a bonus. <laughs> But, glad but to be of I, service. I am so glad and that you know you found the time to come and talk to me today because I think that what you're doing is phenomenal and I think it's going to give people a lot to think about when they're listening to this conversation and I hope that they drop some money toward the folks who are doing this cuz come on obviously is only to the good. It's an investment in everybody's future. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for uh the invitation Nancy. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. That's this week's episode. I am so grateful to Kate Powers for sharing her work with us and to you for listening. I really hope you'll share this episode with a friend and leave a review. There's a link right in your podcast app that tells us about a time when someone's belief in you changed your life. And please don't forget that folks who are doing this work need our financial support. Thanks. If this episode resonated with you, don't forget to get in touch on any of my social platforms or even via email at nancy at fycuriosity.com and tell me what you loved. And if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now and you haven't yet signed up for my free email series on six of the most common creative beliefs that are messing you up, please check it out. It'll untangle those myths and help you get rolling again. You can find it at fycuriosity.com and there's also a link right in your podcast app. See you there and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. Thanks.